0: Welcome, dear listeners, to Journalists Are My Heroes, the interviews podcast that talks to working journalists on the front lines. Because we need to reconnect people, citizens, audiences at large with what it even means to be a journalist. That notion has been lost, or at least it has gotten muddled with the collapse of the local news business model and all our partisan bickering. Uh, True story. Right before recording this intro, I cracked open a fortune cookie that reads, Don't stop now with an exclamation point, so I take that as moral support for forging ahead with this podcast. But seriously, if you care about media, news, and the people that bring meaning to our everyday lives with their stories, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. Rate and review it. You can even help support this if you're so inclined through the Anchor podcast platform. My latest guest isn't a traditional journalist. She's the progressive blogger Laura Bellin of the Iowa blog Bleeding Heartland. For more than a decade and more than 7,000 posts, she has tracked local politics, the Iowa legislature, and presidential caucus campaigns. I wanted to talk to her because she embodies how drastically media has changed in the last decade. She's a research analyst by training who, by her own description, now occupies a, quote, No man's land, unquote, somewhere between traditional journalism and academic study. And she has to figure out how to approach the 2020 presidential caucus cycle with a glut of candidates from her own party to cover, one of whom she may eventually endorse. And that can get tricky, like it did for her last time around between the Clinton and Bernie supporters. Now, I know my broader journalism history. I realize that we didn't always live in a post-Watergate or Walter Cronkite world. Scrappy, partisan media is part of American and press history, and it's as much a part of First Amendment protection as anything. But now that every smartphone jockey is a publisher, what does that mean in practical terms for who qualifies as a journalist or a member of the press? By its nature, journalism is an active profession. You Earn your stripes by active work through rigorous reporting and transparency and developing trust with your audience, not through elite credentialing. But now we have the merging of hyperpartisanship with modern technology, and things tend to get messy. Consider that the scandal in Virginia, over the racist yearbook photo tied to Governor Ralph Northam, was first reported by a conservative blog, Big League Politics. That's a partisan news org in a similar lane as my guest. You know, Laura herself became part of the news conversation recently when she was denied press credentials to cover the Iowa House, and we talk about that. As I mentioned in this conversation with Laura, I'm a lifelong political independent, and I still see a value in a media organization that strives, at least, to provide some sort of objective framework for its reporting. But I also admit that I don't have all the answers, which is one more reason I started this podcast— to have conversations like this to keep myself thinking and probing and to take you with me on this ride. So I joined Laura at her dining room table. We cleared off a little space and set up the microphones and I tried not to disturb the partially assembled jigsaw puzzle. So listen in as we sort out all the answers to today's partisan digital media landscape. Maybe I'm overselling that, but it's a good conversation. Instead of letting me try to do that, Laura, how do you describe yourself in an elevator pitch to people when you introduce yourself yourself as a reporter, blogger, journalist, whatever? What do you say you are?
1: I usually describe myself as the publisher and primary author of Bleeding Heartland, which is a website focused on Iowa politics. So it's, it's hard. The distinction between blogger and reporter is hard, and I think it's nowadays fewer people... Uh, Draw that distinction between whether you publish only for an online source or for a traditional media outlet Uh, My training is not—I don't have a traditional journalism background, Mm -hmm. so for a long time I didn't think of myself as a journalist. And I do think that I am a reporter and a commentator, but it's not the first word that comes to mind sometimes when I think of myself.
0: Okay. Well, I do want to dig into this notion of what does it mean to be a journalist today? And I think you're uniquely suited to talk about this, but before we get to that big question— I just want to. I'm kind of curious about the uh, practicality of what you do every day. What's a basic day like for you as somebody covering politics with Bleeding Heartland?
1: Well, I take a broad view of Iowa politics topics. You know, some people, some websites are more focused on a narrow range of topics. And I like to write about campaigns and elections when the Iowa legislature's in session. Legislative issues are very interesting to me. I have reproductive rights, environmental issues I enjoy. I sometimes do a little bit of media criticism. So it's a wide range I like. I have an occasional series of Throwback Thursday where I go back and look at political events Events and somewhat recent Iowa history so I uh, in, on any given day there are five or six things I could be writing about and I look around and I look to see maybe what are the one or two that I have time to tackle that day
0: right well you seem to be as prolific as two or three journalists sometimes I mean I, I wonder if you have time to just for the rest of life how many day how many hours in a day do you spend writing typically or, or- that's reporting, whatever. That's
1: hard. I don't I don't log my hours. I do spend a personally significant amount of time. I am used to writing every day When I in my past life when I covered Russian politics. I had daily deadlines, and so I got into that rhythm. I enjoy that rhythm of writing every day. Uh, some days I spend quite a bit of time editing uh, posts by guest authors for my website, but I, I don't know. It would be hard to say. When I get really dug into a post, at, there are times when I stay up all night writing.
0: Wow. That well, I uh, and you started down this path in 2007, and you've been, I think, you said the the guiding force uh, for about 11 years now for mm-hmm. Bleeding Heartland. Why did you Why did you decide to do that? I understand you kind of fell in love with politics and covering that, even as you say in Russia. But what was your mission when you began?
1: Well, I didn't really have a mission. If you had talked to me 20 years ago, I thought my life's work was going to be covering Russian politics. I was employed at the time by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. I was writing about mostly domestic Russian politics, campaigns and elections, and parliamentary politics, and I had an, a special interest in the Russian media. And then, uh, as you may know, the KGB creep took over the country in Russia, and I By the third election cycle that I covered in Russia, 2003, 2004, things had changed so much that the beats that I really loved covering were not interesting anymore. So I had to think hard about whether do do I reinvent myself as someone who writes about the Russian economy or foreign policy or Chechnya, or do I do something else? And I have two children. They were born in 2003 and 2005. And that was around the time that I realized that Russian politics wasn't necessarily the most promising avenue for me. Anymore. So I took a break to think about it. And around 2006, I started itching to write again. I mostly was submitting guest commentaries on national political blogs at that time, but I became active on the few Iowa politics websites that existed. And when Bleeding Heartland was started, the original founders. Uh, They didn't know me or know anything about my writing background. I was just a very early registered user. I think I was registered user number nine at the website. And then one of the founders got a job with the Iowa Democratic Party that didn't allow any outside blogging. So he sent me an email and said, hey, would you be interested in writing for the front page? Because it had been a lot of work for him to put together this website. So I didn't have a plan that it would take up as much time as it does now. I mean, I had a toddler and a preschooler. But I said, oh, well, I can contribute to the Leading Heartland's front page. That would be probably pretty fun. And then as time went on, And my kids got older and were in school, I realized that this was a really good outlet for me. So instead of writing about the Russian parliament, I can write about the Iowa legislature. And instead of writing about Russian elections, I can write about Iowa elections. And and there's never any shortage of topics for me to cover here. So I've been able to dig in. And because of my platform, I don't have word limits I don't have firm deadlines most of the time, so I can can sink myself in a post for several thousand words, and probably no editor at a traditional (laughs) publication would ever let me get away with that, but that's something I enjoy.
0: And did you have any vision when you started this that, um, I mean, digital media was going to be, most people would have said that digital media was going to be the the dominant media, but did you see the decline in mainstream media coming, or... What were you thinking about this venue potentially being uh, just just the new media in general?
1: Well, I I think the decline in mainstream media has been going on for a long time. I mean, Mm -hmm. I already noticed the Des Moines Register had had a series of layoffs, and other Iowa newspapers had been shrinking and I did notice that. When Bleeding Heartland started in 2007, there was this explosion around 2006-2007 of state-based progressive blogs. They were mostly modeled on the Daily Coast or another national website, MyDD, that was a similar structure. So it was a community blog where users could contribute content. And many state websites were launched during that time, and most of them are not still functioning. So Bleeding Heartland is one of the ones still going. But it's a lot to keep Providing new content on almost a daily basis and and so I can see why it's not uh, Practical for a lot of people. I'm just very passionate about it.
0: Now you did you ever have any designs that this would become uh, a Vocation not just a hobby that you would that would somehow support itself or you
1: not at the beginning at all And I really didn't think of it that way again. I because I, I thought of myself as in my past life, my job title was research analyst rather than journalist, and I've always thought of myself as an analytical writer, and so I didn't think of myself as doing day-to-day reporting about Iowa politics. So as time has gone on, I've tried to do more breaking news Uh, I still feel that a lot of times my niche is digging deeper into a topic rather than necessarily being the first to report it. But I I feel like I occupy kind of a no man's land sometimes between the academic style of writing and more traditional reporting. And also because a lot of my work blends commentary with reporting with. So in that sense, it doesn't really fit into any conventional journalism models.
0: Yeah. So what did you think about yourself then, Then, starting with then, as a partisan blogger, a partisan reporter, journalist? How did that affect the mission and the way you began to approach Bleeding Heartland in the early years?
1: Well, I love the editorial freedom. That's the best part of it. And when I covered Russia, I had to be more detached, like most reporters are. So I couldn't disclose my feelings about the politicians I was covering. And sometimes that was challenging because I cover, I wrote extensively about the first election cycle when Vladimir Putin came in 1999-2000. I mean, he was bad news. It was apparent right away. Of course, it's turned out to be much worse than I anticipated. But Vladimir Zhirinovsky was a politician I had to cover a lot. And it's hard sometimes to try to write about some extremely offensive or dangerous developments without communicating your feelings about it. So what I love about the blogging platform is that I'm not constrained by that. So I can be free to say, you know, if I think that, um, the, that a law is, is mean-spirited, not just bad policy, but, you know, very destructive, I can comment on that. I do try to show my work. I try to keep my commentaries very grounded in facts and research, but that's one of the best things. Uh, and I could never go back to a style of reporting where I didn't, I didn't feel free to express opinions.
0: So, uh, I mean, this gets into the area that has been a giant, sprawling conversation in journalism now for years, and especially more so with uh, all the ways digital media is going in many different directions so you feel like you're coming from a more powerful or maybe a more honest place as a partisan reporter writer than if you were trying to apply what you i guess what you would say is a maybe almost a, a false uh, objectivity or equivalency for everybody you cover for right everything you cover
1: well and i think that the the traditional journalistic idea of objectivity is just so deeply flawed in many ways, because straight news reporting is making all kinds of editorial decisions all the time. And who's quoted, how the story is framed, how the headline is presented, which voices is it? And so I feel that there is a lot of editorializing that gets snuck into ostensibly objective news reports anyway. But you know from your background, and I've talked to reporters and they tell me this, that they have to go out and find some expert to say the thing that they want to say, that it's too much of an opinion, so they can't say it. So they go and find someone to do that. Well, I don't have to do that because I can just say it myself if it looks like uh, this is this tax plan is very skewed toward the wealthiest people and, you know, doesn't live up to the rhetoric that Republicans are saying. I can say that myself. And I wanted to mention, you said partisan blogger and I, I am a Democrat. I do generally support Democrats, but um, I, I don't feel that I can't criticize Democrats. I mean, during the last campaign. I said our one of our state senators uh, should step down. I criticized the Democratic nominee for governor for not releasing more information about his taxes. So I mean, I don't view myself as like an arm of the Democratic Party where mm. I can't criticize Democrats. And sometimes, because my readership skews toward the more progressive side, sometimes the posts that generate the most arguments or you know the most interest are those ones where I'm disagreeing with people on the Democratic side.
0: Fighting within the family is is where is where you get the most active disagreement sometimes
1: sometimes how do you
0: with that sort of a stance how do you guard against your own blind spots i mean again i've i've talked about on this podcast already and i'm sure i will before about you know what some people call the view from nowhere or other ways to describe traditional mainstream media's striving to be objective Mm -hmm. i mean it's an imperfect process but at least there's trying to create a process whereby you have a larger range of voices be heard and There's a lot of discussion today about you need to call a lie a lie. You need to, you know, obviously uh, fact check and do everything else. Um, But how do you guard, with that stance, how do you guard against your own blind spots? I mean, what has been the downside to the approach you've taken?
1: It's a good question. I'm glad you brought up The View from Nowhere. I'm a big fan of Jay Rosen, and in particular, that piece, The View from Nowhere, has been influential on me and my work. I have a Bleeding Heartland is a community blog, so in any given week, I publish several posts by other authors in addition to work that I've written. So I've tried to engage and elevate more other voices so that I'm not just presenting my own perspective that's been important to me and I try a lot of times when I'm working on a piece I'm always looking for holes in the argument and sometimes I mean there have been pieces that I spiked because I didn't feel that it held up to scrutiny and there have been pieces that I worked on for months before I felt they were ready to publish because I just tried to think of every possible way that somebody could pick it apart
0: So do you think that you're really as hard on the Democratic Party as you're... uh as hard as you are on Republican officials, uh, candidates, that kind of a thing? Or is that not your mission?
1: Well, Republicans have been controlling things for a while in Iowa. So it's been hard. In the early years, the Democrats had control of the legislature and the governor's office. And between 2007 and 2010, I wrote a lot of posts that were criticizing things that were happening in the legislature or things that the governor did. I mean, more recently, when we had six years of split control, so the Democrats controlled the Iowa Senate and the Republicans, the Iowa House. And and I, I suppose I, I do have more of a focus on what I consider destructive Republican policies, but I definitely wrote things when I didn't agree with bills that were passed by the Democratic Senate or our deals that the Democratic Senate majority leader cut. I don't, feel that i i was i mean in fact (laughs) some people felt that i was too critical sometimes as i said i get more blowback sometimes of the posts that i write about democrats i was critical last year of some of the entrenched incumbents in the iowa house where i felt that they weren't doing enough to raise money and it was going to leave democratic challengers shorthanded in a lot of the races that we needed to win to get a majority and i i feel that that post held up well it wasn't very well received at the time in the
0: traditional you know, newspaper world, you'd have uh, a range of reporters um, who are, you know, doing the quote-unquote objective reporting. You'd have, you know, columnists and um, other people who weigh in with opinion. You'd have an editorial board. I've always seen a lot of flaws with the uh, the old-fashioned kind of firewall between the news gathering operation and the editorial boards of newspapers. We could—that's a whole other topic. But there, were, the audience then occasionally would obsess over what is the political bent of. a a given newsroom or a given news organization, you know, is it more liberal? Is it more conservative? And, and evaluating the coverage to try to spot that. So do, your audience must obsess over where to put you on the progressive spectrum. Like, how Do you describe yourself as a, as a particular uh, kind of Democrat then? Uh,
1: I It's funny. I am a progressive Democrat. In 2006, before I had the blog, I supported Ed Fallon, who was the most progressive in, in the field of candidates for governor, and I supported him again in 2008 when he challenged our congressional incumbent in the primary. And I got a lot of flack for that at the time, but it was funny during the last election cycle. I didn't write any kind of of endorsement Uh, editorial for Hillary Clinton, I did end up caucusing for Hillary Clinton, I published lots of guest posts by other people advocating for their own candidates. But it was kind of funny, because there were some Iowa Democrats, some of the people in the what I would call the Bernie crowd, who were, you know, calling me establishment shill or whatever. And I mean, it's funny for me to think of myself that way, because I'm, I was out there knocking on doors for Ed Fallon, who the establishment absolutely hated in the Iowa Democratic Party. So uh, I consider myself I mean, I'm very concerned with environmental issues. Issues of racial justice are important to me. I consider myself a supporter of labor, but I've sometimes tangled with labor Democrats over what I feel are their misplaced priorities. So, uh, you know, I think that there, the Democratic Party is, encompasses a pretty broad spectrum of people. And uh, and so I, I try not to let myself get pigeonholed too much.
0: So, I mean, some of these sectors you're talking about, you know, labor, Bernie supporters, whatever. I mean, do you feel like they should still look to you as giving them or their causes a fair shake? I mean, you're upfront and you're honest about your bias when it rears its head. But you're saying that because you do that, you're um, and then you show your work and you show your reporting, your sourcing mm-hmm. and everything else. They should trust you as much as anybody. As well, any I, I
1: think so. And what I often say when people don't like it is I often say I would welcome a guest post if, if yeah. you want to offer that perspective to my readers. And sometimes people take me up on that. I mean, a lot of times they don't want to, want to do that. But I've published uh, posts by Bernie supporters who were very critical of of the party. I mean, I, I the thing that I most objected to during the last cycle was that there were some people who were trying to use – I've been – a strong critic of the Iowa caucus system since 2007, the structure of the Democratic caucuses and what I feel are disenfranchising elements of the caucuses. And this goes; it has nothing to do with support for a particular candidate. Some of these ideas started taking shape in my mind in 1988 when I attended my first caucus myself. So I've been a critic of the caucus system. And then after the 2016 caucuses, there were some people in Bernie world who were trying to use my work to support their intention that the caucuses were rigged for hillary which was completely false i mean the flaws that were in the caucus system were kind of baked into the rules that they've been using for 40 years and nobody had their thumb on the scales for hillary so i did object to that pretty strongly but other than that i mean i will publish a wide range of views if it's not defamatory or in violation of copyright you know i will publish you know, almost any argument that someone wants to make on the Democratic or progressive side of the ledger.
0: Having witnessed my share of caucuses, I agree it's not the most straightforward <laughs> system to to observe, participate in or evaluate. Um, so going into that's a You raise a good uh, question in my mind going into 2020. Then are you going to approach that any differently or Will you support a particular candidate at a certain time, you know, living up to kind of what you talk about in terms of being upfront about your uh, support and bias and...
1: I haven't decided how I'm going to cover. It's going to be very challenging with the field as large as it is for me to even cover everybody in the caucuses. I'm trying to write at least one in-depth piece about all of the Democratic contenders. I've already done that about several of them. I'm undecided myself. I expect to be undecided until late in the game. And I'm not sure yet whether I'm going to endorse. As I said, before the 2016 caucuses, I did not write a post about my plans to caucus for Hillary Clinton. I did in the... uh, 2016 US Senate primary, I did support a candidate openly. And in this last governor's race, I supported a candidate openly. But in the congressional primary, I didn't have a strong preference. And I ended up not endorsing any of the candidates. I mean, I, I voted for somebody on the primary day. But so I haven't decided yet whether I am going to feel Inspired enough to what I feel generally when there's a very strong field and I like a lot of the contenders, I tend not to endorse unless I feel strongly that one candidate is really a lot better than the other options. But my readers are pretty well informed, and so they definitely don't need me to tell them what to think about anything. And then
0: when you do endorse, say, candidate A, and it's late in the game, but there's still events and there's still jockeying going on, if you then go to cover candidate B does that make you feel uneasy or do you should they kind of look at you twice when you walk into you know the, the event or, or have you ever had that experience I, I
1: don't feel uneasy about it I, I disclose if I've endorsed a candidate I disclose that and I've found I mean I feel like I'm on reasonably friendly terms with some of the candidates I haven't supported in primaries I mean I I've, I've found that some Republicans will talk to me some of them don't respond to my phone calls or emails but some of them will because they know that I may not disagree I may not agree with their stand, but I will quote them accurately. And so I'm going to give them a fair shake to present their point of view or their response to whatever I'm planning to write. So I haven't found that it's a big problem.
0: Is this the new true journalism as far as you're concerned? I mean, you, not necessarily just local newsrooms, but anywhere. We still have um, more traditional newsrooms that have that model of, um, you know, reporters that are not to be partisan, and they have different uh, ethics requirements in their job uh, descriptions that forces that enforces that. How do you? F- I mean, how do you feel about what you do and kind of that norm? And as we've talked before, how that norm has eroded. Uh, um, and in, in some ways, your, your reporting is filling a gap with with a, from a different angle.
1: I feel like everybody has a role to play. And I mean, I wish nothing but health and success for all traditional newsrooms because I rely on having good, solid reporting out there. And I want to see newspapers succeed. I want to see strong uh, local radio covering local events. And I feel that I'm always looking, like, as I said, there on any given day, there are a lot of stories I could write about. So I'm looking for either the story nobody else is covering uh, because maybe they consider it too small bore? Or can I drill down and go deeper into the story that everyone's covering and just explain in more depth what's going on with that bill or what happened with this interview? Can I provide more excerpts from that candidate's stump speech. Can I put up the audio clip so people can listen for themselves? So I feel like we can complement each other's work. And I mean, I hope that the future isn't just uh, in independent blogs. I hope that it will include a range of media sources, because we all, I think, need each other.
0: So- um, I, like I say, I wanted to talk to you from, since when I started this podcast, since your life and work is so much on the front lines of so many things we talk about in modern journalism. But then it got even more interesting recently when you applied for uh, press credentials for the first time, I think, at the state house for the mm-hmm. Iowa House Representatives and were denied um, as a member of the public, not a member of the press. I don't know. What do you think about that now and, and where it stands? And um, I mean, how do you, how do you even more... Demonstrate that you're a member of the press.
1: Well, I think it's outrageous and I have never applied formally for credentials before to cover the Iowa House or Senate or the governor's office. But this year I decided to do things a little differently. I thought I might spend more time at the state house, and I applied for all three. The Iowa Senate staff immediately processed my application with no problem and the iowa governor's office just won't answer any of my questions about whether i'm credentialed or what they need from me to get me credentialed and the iowa house rejected my credentials and as of almost four weeks ago now the house chief clerk just stopped responding to any of my follow-up questions i mean there's no question that i meet the definition of someone who publishes a substantial amount of original news and information about the Iowa legislature. So to say that I don't qualify as a member of the media is completely arbitrary and capricious. There's no written rule in the Iowa House that says reporters for online sources don't qualify for credentials. They've credentialed reporters in the past who only wrote for news websites, or and many of them wrote commentary as well. So there's just no legal basis for what they're doing. And I'm, I am surprised that it's come to this, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised. But I didn't expect to have any problems with getting credentialed.
0: Now, I, uh, I should remind listeners that, it, and well, and, and I'm happy to talk about this too, I'm in a political independent, and it's hard for me sometimes to wonder, what was the chicken what was the egg I spent my whole life in in a newsroom and it's part of my inclination and even in my post-journalism life I'm, I'm still independent I feel good about that although it's kind of a consistent just a constant exploration of my own beliefs and you know I have very strong beliefs on different issues but I've just never been a partisan and so that makes it interesting to talk to somebody like you know you too so, I, you know, I, you have an obvious track record, so I, nobody would question your dedication, your reporting, and your thoroughness, and everything else. And so I understand on the legal points of uh, providing you press credentials. But I'm kind of interested in the practical question, like where do, where does anybody, uh, you know, whether it's a legislature or, or anybody else granting press credentials, how do they apply any sort of standard? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just curious. I wonder if we could solve I, that in this conversation. I mean, would somebody, who's a, would somebody who is uh, going to uh, report and disseminate information on a Twitter account, mm-hmm. could they launch that? What if they had something called Midwest Snowflake Destroyer mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. And they started a Twitter account mm-hmm. and they were consistent with for five days... Uh, is, should they get press credentials? I mean, I don't know. Where do you draw a line?
1: Well, I'm told that in Wisconsin and Missouri and maybe other states, but those are the two I know about, that state house press associations make these decisions rather than leaving it up to elected officials or their partisan appointees. And they, the standard that they've adopted is something like, a person who regularly publishes original news and information about the legislature. So I think that you'd have to do more than just commenting on Twitter about somebody. You'd It would have to be somebody who was presenting some kind of original either breaking news or analysis in some form or exclusive interviews, something like that. You'd have to demonstrate that you were regularly providing news comment, content. It is a subjective call on who's a journalist and who's not a journalist. And as I said, I don't have a traditional journalistic training. But it's clear, I mean, under the definition that the Iowa Supreme Court has adopted, somebody who reports, photographs, edits, or does news gathering for any sort of medium, I meet that standard. It doesn't have to be delivered through newsprint or radio or television. I think that we all should be able to agree that somebody who's doing original reporting does qualify as a journalist.
0: Yeah. And, And well, and theoretically, that could happen all on Twitter. I mean,
1: it could if somebody I mean, I guess they'd have to string together long Twitter right. threads to, to get original content on there. Because, again, I think it would have to be more than just some quips about the Iowa legislature. You'd have to be providing something of some news value to your readers.
0: Right. Well, you know, like any publisher in any, any audience, you you gain credibility with your audience through a track record and through demonstrating good faith and, and you know, your reporting and um and so that's my que- that's the question in my mind with this whole debate if this is if you know more independent news sites reporters such as you, know, you are um, going to become more common and potentially fill in more gaps from every side of the political or every corner of the political spectrum you know, what are the practical rules to apply to what constitutes that new body of the press, you know?
1: Well, it's, it's a strange idea. And some people, since this became public that I'm having credentialing problems, some people have said, well, you know, you're biased, or that's the other reporters are at least pretending to be objective. And the First <laughs> Amendment was never intended to protect only nonpartisan or objective. I mean, the, the framers of the Constitution explicitly were talking about protecting the right to publish things like Thomas Paine's pamphlets. It was And, and at the the time that the Iowa Constitution was adopted in 1857, most newspapers had an affiliation with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. So the idea that the freedom of the press was is only for people who pretend not to have opinions about the things they're reporting, I mean, that is not supported by anything in history. Right. And now in the 20th century, journalism standards evolved to the point that it became, you know, seen as more respectable to have this objective reporting side and then leave all the editorialized to the opinion page, but again, that sh- has nothing to do with what's in the Iowa Constitution or the U.S. Constitution regarding press freedom.
0: No, I'm totally with you there. I mean, the the uh, profile pic for this blog has First Amendment <laughs> front and center mm-hmm. in it. Um, but I'm I am in. You know, it's just it's more of a practical question of you know. Um, in the beginning, you know, different measures of citizenship used to be tied to land ownership, which was not a great idea, or. Uh, you know, some notions of the press and and freedom were tied to the ability to even have a press or the ability to print things, and they couldn't envision this modern digital economy, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, now that everybody is a publisher, it's just interesting the different ways we have to navigate that Mm -hmm. uh like facebook discovering suddenly that they need to apply editorial judgment right (laughs) after after devising their platform right right um and getting into a little bit of hot water so i uh i mean because if it just wouldn't be practical if all of a sudden you had uh, two hundred more people applying for press credentials at any given legislature. How, you know, how do they handle that and get everybody seated?
1: well, if if they had, if there were two hundred people who were legitimately doing regular original reporting about the legislature, then I would say that they should all get credentialed. And there should be some kind of random drawing on. I, I know there are a limited number of seats in the press box, mm-hmm. But you could say, you know, every week that there is some kind of rotating, uh, ability to sit in the press box. But everybody, in in my opinion, I mean, the more the merrier. Everyone who's doing original reporting about whether it's the governor's office or the legislature should be entitled to credentials, should be entitled to be at the news conferences. And there's no reason why it has to be limited to a certain number of people.
0: Right. I mean, and you're obviously, you're, you're not the only one. I, another reason I like talking to you is this is playing out everywhere. So just recently in the headlines, we saw the a uh, scandal over the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam. And the organization, the reporter that brought that old yearbook photo to light was from a conservative blog, mm-hmm. um, Big League Politics, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So there, there's another example of, uh, that, I mean, that's basically somebody in your same court, mm-hmm. in, in your same position. Um, now they have, you know, they, they also frame themselves as fiercely independent, not beholden to right or left or anything, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, uh, the Washington Post covers them and notes that, you know, they have money coming from various places and, and, you know, from former candidates and this and that, you know, I guess even for a, for a new news organization like that, the funding model could call uh, uh, could call their objectivity or subject even their subjectivity into question.
1: Well, I think that they should disclose if they're getting if there's a conflict of interest, potentially, about where they're getting their funding and who they I, I definitely think all of that should be disclosed. I feel whether you're operating in traditional media or an independent website, I think that that's a real problem. I mean, one of the news sources that was accredited in the past in the Iowa House was a now defunct website called the Iowa Watchdog, but it was funded by the Franklin Center, uh, which is in the network of Republic right wing dark money groups that's connected to some Koch brothers money, and so they were pushing, they were funding some state house reporters all over the country to do reporting with a conservative bent, which is fine, but I think that they should have disclosed their funding sources.
0: Yeah. Now, um, I was going to ask you, do you ever get do you ever get wary of viewing, you know, world and and local events through a partisan lens? But you do have a little bit of a pressure valve. You have this uh, tradition you call Wildflower Wednesdays. Yes, I think <laughs> so. You post. It's all about politics. <laughs> And wildflowers <laughs> so it's it's kind of like that <laughs> traditional newspaper model in the sense that you know there's a little bit of a section for everybody or at least there's some variety and that I assume that's just to keep yourself sane I, you I
1: enjoy it I started it in 2012 I didn't know that it would grow into as big a thing as it did but I got interested in wildflowers maybe around 2009 2010 I started learning more because I had my preschool age son was interested mm-hmm. and we would look things up on nature walks and this is the benefit of being your own editor as I can just do whatever i want so i love the freedom with a platform and so spring summer and fall i do publish on wednesdays a post usually featuring one some native plant from iowa i've had some guest authors and photographers contribute to that as well and we're close to now 200 different wildflower species uh, featured at the website and i like that i feel like that's a a, it's not exactly breaking news but it is something that readers can only find on my site
0: would you ever want to expand into other non-political you know not necessarily Flora and fauna, but I mean, just other uh, non-political, apolitical areas of coverage, or are you just are you devoted to that for the core mission of? I really, land?
1: I can barely keep my head above water on all the things. Just trying to cover state government, the state legislature, campaigns, and elections. I feel like some days I've already bitten off more than I can chew, even with that. So. Some of the most successful websites I think are very narrowly focused like Marcy Wheeler's Empty Wheel site is one that I'm a big fan of the Talk Left site which discusses criminal justice issues or naked capitalism those are some of my favorite blogs and they are a little bit more targeted than I am so if anything sometimes I've thought about you know do I should I try to be a little more focused on a subset of issues in Iowa but the, I, there are just so many topics that I want to cover so it's hard for me not to chase a story that's anything related to um, well, if it's a state or local issue
0: so what is your I don't know five ten year plan for Bleeding Heartland I mean, what do you it, it's hard to even maintain it and you've you know gotten a lot of accolades for being rigorous in, in what you do where do you take it from here
1: I don't know. I tend to think of things. Every year I reevaluate, and uh, every year I decide to keep going. So I don't have a strict five- or ten-year plan. And if it gets to the point where it's not sustainable for me to continue, then I'll, I'll have to make some changes. But I don't have any definite plans to do that now. I enjoy what I'm doing. I feel it's a luxury to be able to write and to, as I said, have that freedom. And so I'm just enjoying it.
0: So you, know, you talked a little bit about you rely on... Uh, you know, other reporters and other reporting to help feed your work and your and your commentary, um, but you also want some of the norms to change. So what's, I mean, what's one way that you would like to see just the news or the media climate in general change to, I guess, in a more ideal state with some of these issues we're talking
1: about? Well, the biggest thing that bothers me about the mainstream news coverage is the he said, she said nature of it, and that there's just no fact-checking most of the time. There might be a separate, occasionally a separate sidebar that's fact checking some claim. But instead, we have in day in and day out, you have news stories that present both sides of a bill or a policy issue as if they have equal merit. And often one side is just very mendacious about it. So that's a problem. And I know why journalists do it, because they don't want to be accused of having a bias. They don't. It's easier for them just to quote both sides, but it leaves readers, I think, misinformed. And that's where Jay Rosen's critiques have been so valuable. And I wish every journalism practitioner or student would read everything he writes on his PressThink blog, because, as I said, I'm a big fan. So that's the biggest thing I'd like to change. I mean, it's hard. The word limits. I don't know a way around having the word limits. As they exist in the mm-hmm. traditional media, I feel that often they're missing important elements of the story, but they just don't have the space to go into that kind of depth. And I recognize that, and and so that's where you know so, sometimes I mean I would like to see a little more digging, but then with newsroom cutbacks, I know people are so strapped for time. I mean I don't know the the post that I spent the most time on last year was one that uh, the Cedar Rapids Gazette had published an article that just alluded to the fact that. There was something strange about the way the governor appointed this judge. It didn't it was announced on Monday that she appointed him on Thursday and that was odd and there was a quote from the governor's office that didn't sound very convincing. So I spent months with working on public records requests and going through the records and I recognize that's not realistic then most newsrooms are not going to be able to allow someone to do that kind of work. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I felt like that was a story that really merited the attention and then it just makes me wonder how many other stories are out there that no one is investigating because people don't have the the resources or the time.
0: What's been your biggest regret or your biggest mistake through the years, do you think? Every news organization has corrections they run. Oh,
1: absolutely. Well, I mean, the biggest problem I've found because of my lack of a traditional journalism background is just some basic skills like I never learned— proper interview technique I mean I think that there are some interviews where I think back like I wish I had asked things differently I wish I had done things differently uh, there have been times where I ran a piece too quickly and I didn't give the newsmaker enough time to respond so I mean one that I can remember from maybe four or five years ago that the Secretary of Agriculture of Iowa had blocked me on Twitter yeah. and I thought you know this was outrageous I hadn't been trolling him or anything I'd hardly said anything about him recently and I wrote something about it and I, I wish in retrospect that I would had given their office more time to get back to me because they claim that it was inadvertent and, you know, so they undid the blocking. But there have been other cases like that. There was, I remember, I mean, corrections, you know, I, I I, don't, no one likes running corrections, but I feel it's very important to do. And that's a pet peeve I have with some news organizations. I feel that they aren't as willing to correct their work as they should be.
0: Yeah. Do you have a favorite conservative news source?
1: I mean, that's that- hard to say. I feel that the, the, Conserv- I, I think that there's kind of a hole on the conservative side of the spectrum, but the Caffeinated Thoughts website is an Iowa conservative site that I do read regularly. and I- Or even national. You know, oh, national. Yeah, I mean, I read some conservative... I tend to just follow conservative commentators more on social media rather than... Uh, there, there's no conservative news website that I read cover to cover, but I think that there are there are interesting perspectives. I mean, there's an argument that the conservative elite media has uh, to they have so many never Trump voices that aren't, don't really reflect where the Republican Party is. So you're not you're getting one conservative perspective, but it isn't really educating you about where the party is. I would like to see more. I, I think there's room in Iowa for more both progressive and conservative voices publishing. I, I think it would be valuable to have more perspectives. And I, I kind of believe in spraying the battlefield so I, I'd like to see more.
0: <laughs> I would just you, uh, conservative elite media. that elite gets thrown around everywhere. <laughs> Liberal elite media, mainstream elite media, I don't know. I feel like that the word elite has just been in the post- 2008 world. It's everywhere now
1: well i'm thinking of people like the national review or the the weekly yeah. standard the the media the conservative media that criticized trump that criticized steve king and we see a lot of that from the the commentators and some of or some of the ones who have the conservatives who have columns in places like the new york times or washington post but they don't reflect where a lot of conservatives are on the ground and i think that's why we see i mean I'm convinced that Steve King is going to win his primary next year, but we see a lot of conservatives saying like, oh, no, you know, Republicans are really ready to throw him overboard. Well, I'll believe it when the voters of the 4th District of Iowa show me that in the June 2020 primary, because right now my money is on Steve King. I think that he's unfortunately a lot of his constituents are very aligned with his views.
0: Yeah, that's another whole podcast episode. <laughs> um, so, well, don't use this as the model for proper interview technique, but thanks for sitting down to you know, talk with me in this interview, Laura. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks and, for having me. Um, uh, good luck on keeping your head above water for the next 7,000 posts. Yeah, I'll, I'll need it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Journalists Are My Heroes. You can go back and listen to old episodes in the queue. And please reach out if you have any questions, suggestions, uh, you're interested in being a guest. I'm talking to working journalists and journalism thinkers all around the country and even internationally. You can reach me at @journalismhero on social, especially Twitter and Instagram, at Hero, And you can always reach me at Munson at gmail.com. Kyle Lee Munson at gmail.com. Until then, please subscribe to your local media news sources and to my brothers and sisters in media, do the stories that make you proud. It's as simple as that, sort of. Take care.